in Corrie ten Boom's uh, book, The Hiding Place, she actually quotes her sister, Betsy, and she says this, the safest place is the center of God's will. Safest place is the center of God's will. Now, uh, if you haven't read the book, you don't know the story, right? Just a little bit about the circumstance, right? They are a family in the Netherlands that are, at the time of the Nazis, that are hiding Jews in their house to protect them from Nazis. So they are putting themselves at risk for hiding the Jews, right? And they're also, the the Jews in their house are at risk at well. So their safety is on the line here. So in the midst of that, Betsy said, the safest place is doing God's will. Now you and I know uh, doing God's work, being in his will, doesn't necessarily mean physical safety here and now. The Ten Booms understood that. They knew that their physical safety was not guaranteed. In fact, they were actually, it was threatened by what they were doing. We just sang uh, the song, right? Oh, death, where is your thing. Oh hell, where is your victory? And the reality is that you and I know, man, it sure feels like it stings now. I don't know what your circumstance is. I don't know how your week is or what's going on, but there is pain now, isn't there? And it feels like death and sin and hell at times win in the here and now. But the gospel is telling us, it's telling us, God's will is telling us, it is not the winner. It is temporary. It is temporary. Jesus understands this statement as well. The, center, the safest place is the center of God's will. Jesus led his disciples into the heart of a hostile territory, Samaria. He showed them the Father's will for himself and for them. By what he was doing, he's modeling, this is the Father's will for me and for you. He showed them the Father's will is to be a witness in Jerusalem. It's the witness to be a witness in Judea. It's to be a witness in Samaria. It's to be a witness to the ends of the earth. That's the Father's will for you and I and the disciples. More so, Jesus actually modeled the Father's will. Them. Isn't it to say, hey, this is what you're supposed to do? He actually showed them, this is what you do. He modeled the way to actually be a witness to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to every good. He, he modeled in this moment, he actually models the cross. Just like the ten booms did, willing to sacrifice themselves for others, that others may live. The cross, I hope you understand, the cross is the way of witness. The cross is our salvation. It's, it, what, it, it takes away our sins, right? Jesus takes away the penalty of our sins. He gives us his righteousness. But the cross is much more than that as well. The cross is the singular model into how we are to witness into the world. This is actually Martin Luther's uh, theology of the cross, if you want to dig down deeper into that. The cross is, is also the model. Jesus models the cross his whole life, the way of laying down your life for others. Jesus sacrifices his needs. In this story, his hunger, his thirst for the true hunger and the true thirst for those around him, the Samaritans, 
the woman. He models laying down his life to his disciples to see that you lay down your life so that others that have the need may have the true need, which is eternal life, the true need of all. He models the cross, which is the Father's will. If the cross is the Father's will, and the cross is more than just a moment, but it is a way, it is a method, then here's what I have to say. The Father's will for you is the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. Let's go see how Jesus continued to model this. John 4, 27. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to the woman, what do you seek, or to Jesus, why you were talking with them? They left Jesus because this is what their job was, was to take care of his needs. They left Jesus at the well in the middle of the day because they knew no one else would come to the well at the middle of the day. And let's go find food for us and for Jesus. It's lunchtime or maybe it's second breakfast. We're not sure what the pattern is at that moment for them. right? But they come back and they're shocked to see that Jesus, this is against a cultural norm, that a man is talking to a woman that's not his wife. That Jesus is engaged in a conversation with a woman. Number one. Number two, it's a Samaritan. Why is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman? And then because the woman comes at noon, women would go and gather the water at the cool of the day in the morning or late afternoon. They would not come at midday. If they only came at midday because the woman knows, we know the story, that she's an immoral woman. The town knows that she's immoral. So she is ostracized, even more so. And so Jesus is talking to an immoral woman. Now, they might not know that at the moment, but Jesus knows it. Jesus knows. And did you notice? They actually don't follow Jesus' lead. Jesus is talking to the woman. They remain silent. They don't even ask the woman, why are you talking to Jesus? What are you seeking? They don't even ask Jesus to like, man, is this something we should be doing? They don't even ask Jesus the question, why are you talking with her? They don't even seek that understanding. They are not following his lead at all. Remember that the quote we had, the safest place? The safest place is the center of God's will. Now, we'll excuse the disciples a little bit because they don't know that Jesus is fully God at this moment. They don't know exactly who he is, but they knew though he is his rabbi and they're supposed to follow and do what your rabbi does in which they do not do. So they are not even at the will, give them the best case error, of the rabbi. If the safest place is the center of God's will, then the unsafest place would be not in his will. Are the disciples living in safety by not addressing the woman? No, they are not. How many places in your life are you unsure or unwilling to enter God's will to follow Jesus? Maybe you're concerned about your safety. Maybe you're concerned about your temporal needs. When are those moments for you? What are those moments for you? Because we're learning today, if you're not in God's will, you are not safe. If you are in God's will, you are safe. 
We, we pray this, right? Jesus teaches us to pray this, Father, thy will be done on heaven and on earth. Right? We pray this. Right? I think we need to take it a little bit farther. Father, thy will be done in my heart. In my heart. Move me to act. Move me to enter into your will and do your will. In John verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything that I did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Know the conduct, right? Jesus has revealed that he's the Messiah to her. More than that, he has offered the Holy Spirit to her. He has offered eternal life and been pretty explicit about that. And he has squarely declared himself to be God to her. Remember, the disciples weren't present. He said it. What does the woman do? Why did she come to the well? To get water. That's why you go to the well. What does she do? After her encounter with Jesus, she drops her jars and leaves. There's an urgency in her. She goes back to the townspeople, to the townspeople that have ostracized her, to the townspeople that normally don't talk to her, that wouldn't want to be near her because she's unclean. She's like, I'm going to go to an unsafe place. And I'm going to tell them what just happened about this man and understand, you remember what we told last week about her under, the Samaritan's understanding of the Messiah or the, or the Tahib, right? Is that a person that, that knows everything about you, right? So this is what's triggering for you. This person knows everything. Could this be the one? There's an urgency and an eagerness and excitement that's full of the woman. And I don't even think she probably realized that she dropped her jars. She says, I'm, this is something what I have to do right now is go tell everyone and anyone. It's easy to grow cold, isn't it? It's easy to grow complacent in our relationship with God. Well, maybe it's not easy for you, but it's easy for me. It's easy to be complacent with the truth, and it's easy to be complacent with the gospel. When I was in, in seminary, I had a professor, and you, know, you take notes as you're a professor, these, these hour lectures, and actually more than that, they're like three-hour lectures, and you take these classes, and you're like, I've got to make sure that I understand what's going on, and you write it down, and these, these are exegetical classes of books in the Bible, and in the middle of these classes, this one professor, he would always break down crying. He'd break down crying because he's explaining the gospel, and here I think, I'm like, man, I am a calloused heart person. All I want to know is, am I going to get it right on the test? <laughs> and so in the midst of this, he's actually explaining the truth of the gospel to us. And this is what it means to his heart. We take, we take our relationship with God for granted, and oftentimes we just ignore. We ignore him. One of the things that we're, we've been doing is our midweek uh, Bible study uh, via Zoom, as we started last week, is praying with Paul. And one of the reasons why we're doing that, because those are the things, that's the thing that we often neglect, our relationship with God. And man, are there things that we can learn to help inspire, encourage, uh, and re-engage in our prayer life? And how do we learn from Paul on the way he prays?
I would encourage you, if you didn't join last week, join this week. I would encourage you, if you, you're long tooth in your relationship with God, join us. If you are just beginning, join us, because every one of us can learn and relearn and re-engage. And how do, we, how do we have a conversation? How do we have a relationship with God? And that's what prayer is. How do we listen to him? What are, what are the techniques? What helps us keep away from mental drift? Uh, the gospel is quite clear, is that God makes dead things alive. God takes your, your cold heart and makes it alive. So if you're feeling, man, I, am, uh, I feel cold. I, I'm distant from God. Re-engage. Re-engage. He's not distant from you. He's not distant from you at all. He wasn't distanced from this Samaritan woman. And in this moment, God engaged her, and her heart was set on fire. And verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, said, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone bought him, brought him food to eat? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, the disciples were absent when he had the conversation with the Samaritan woman. But this is a conversation that is literally the same conversation that he is having with his disciples now. He's like, okay, I'm going to re-engage you and have the same conversation that you, right? The, the woman was thirsty, and, she, and Jesus engaged her about, instead of physical thirst, he's like, let's talk about your spiritual thirst. Let me talk about a way that I can quench your spiritual thirst forever. He gives you the Holy Spirit. And now though, the disciples are, are totally focused on physical eating, which is right, because that's what they went to do is get food. And we need to eat food. And we need to drink water while we're here on earth. But Jesus begins to, I, I need to teach them the same story. The same conversation about physical food and spiritual food and what's more important and it's he's really evoking Deuteronomy 8 3 which is the same thing that he quotes in um, the temptation in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8 3 says and he humbled you God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna I just want you to pull back for this for a second I hear it is the word of God saying, God let the Israelites in the wilderness be hungry. And then he fed them manna that he provided miraculously. That's a very fascinating thing that God let them be physically hungry and then he provided. He didn't like, oh, you guys are satisfied, then I'll give you some more. He let them be hungry. And it goes on, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. There's the lesson. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is what God was trying to teach the Israelites in the wilderness. Listen, you don't live by physical provisions. You live by the provision of the eternal one. The one that provisions last forever and ever. I mean, he knows that you need bread to live temporarily in this world. He knows that. But he knows what really helps you is him. And so this is the lesson that he taught the Samaritan woman. And now he's teaching his disciples. 
my food. My food. Jesus says, I'm not satisfied with water on earth. I'm not satisfied with food on earth. My food, what satisfies me is to do the Father's will. More than that, very specifically, what he has called me to do, to accomplish his work, to accomplish his work. This is no uh, slight of word here. Jesus is to accomplish the Father's work. This is the same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he's done. It's the same word in John 19, 30, when Jesus received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. It is accomplished. I have done the Father's work. It's over. And of course, then he dies. It's the same word that he uses in John 17, 4 in his great high priestly prayer. He says, She says to the Father, Jesus, I glorified you here on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is before the cross. This is before the cross. Before, I mean, he's always got his eyes on the cross because the cross is not just a moment in time, which it is, but it also is a way and a means. It's the ends, but it's also the way and the means. I glorified you, Father. I glorified, and I have accomplished the work. Now, had he accomplished the work yet? Had he died on the cross? No, but everything else was done, and he knew the cross was coming. Right? Remember, I want you to understand, the cross is the ends. The cross is the ends that brings death and then life. But the cross is a, is a way to live a life. I want you to understand, we are dead people. We are dead people. And so at the cross, Jesus gives us life, new life. And in that new life, we are then to live the resurrected life, which just happens to be the way of the cross, laying down your life for others, which is the Father's will, which was the Father's will for Jesus, because Jesus wasn't dead. He was always the resurrection and always the life. We lay our life down just as Jesus. We don't have the same way. We point people to the cross, but we lay our lives down so that we can point them to the cross, so that others may have life and walk into the way of the resurrection, the way of the cross. I want you to give you a, a little bit of understanding like, of work and rest in Scripture. Of work and rest in Scripture, right? Where we talk about entering into the Father's will, entering into Jesus. I enter into the, what God has asked me to do. And I accomplish it, what he does. I'm like, man, I know in our lives we just are tired people. I want you to understand, in Scripture, rest doesn't mean no work. It does not mean no work. In fact, the early church never, didn't have a Sabbath. You know why? They were under Roman rule and there was no Sabbath. They worked seven days a week. They loved the holidays. Romans had holidays, right? And so Christians entered those holidays and celebrated Christ on those holidays. But rest in Scripture doesn't mean no world work. In fact, in the garden before sin, there was work. 
The difference is sin enters, and now the consequence, the punishment of sin is now our work. It's, it's really the natural consequence of this. Of, of our sin is now our work becomes toilsome and burdensome. And why? Just think about why this happens. Because our work is toilsome and burdensome because we're not in the Father's will. And so every action that you are not in the Father's will, guess what? It's exhausting. It's burdensome. It's like toil. There's a heavy burden and laden on our shoulders when we work outside of God's will. Jesus is rested and he is satisfied because he's in God's will. He's in God's will. Yes, does he get hungry? Yes, does he get thirsty? But even this moment, like, hey, that's doesn't really what satisfies me. Why I'm satisfied is that I'm doing the will of the Father. That's what he's inviting you into. Like, you want to be satisfied? You want to be rested in your work? Be in the Father's will. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It's not what he's saying. I mean, when he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to thirty, this make, it begins to make complete understanding. He's not saying stop working; it's to stop being outside of God's will. Now, Jesus says, "Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." It doesn't say he'll stop the work, does he? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What, what is a yoke, right? It's a yoke where you, you tie two animals together, right? Oxen, and you plow the field. Oftentimes one is bigger than the others, right? And it, it helps them go in a straight line, right? And so you go wherever you go. And so Jesus says, you're tied to me. You're yoked to me. You go and you learn from me. You do what I do, which is a total understanding of what you do with a rabbi. I don't just want to learn the head knowledge. I want to do what you do. So there's action here. There is work here. But Jesus said, it is restful. It is satisfying work when you're in the Father's will. Right? And Jesus goes on to say, for I am gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The cross is the way we learn from Jesus. Well, the way of the cross, laying down our life. The way of the cross is the will for Jesus, and it's the way of the cross is the will for us. Our labor is not necessarily easy, but it's not toilsome when we're in the Father's will. The cross is life-giving not just to uh, others, but it's to ourselves when we're in the way of the cross. In John 4, 35 it says, do you not say there are four months that comes, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving, ra- receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. Just think about what's happening in this moment. Are the disciples rejoicing in this moment? Are they happy? 
I mean, we don't know exactly what their emotion is, but you get, can get a sense like they are discombobulated, they're disjointed, this is not normal, this is not okay, what is he doing? Jesus has just saved this woman. <laughs> He's just given her life. And they're not rejoicing in this. They're more concerned as why is he doing this? Why is he doing this for her? Jesus has just sown and he's reaped the harvest right in front of them. And he's about to sow and reap the harvest to a bunch of other Samaritans right in front of them. And are the disciples rejoicing? Are you rejoicing with Jesus? Are you living with Jesus? Are you rejoicing because you are seeing how he is reaping? Are you experiencing that reaping? Seeing people come to Jesus. And listen, I, I, when I say see people come to Jesus, it's not always this magnificent moment that happens in a point in time. And everyone's journey with Jesus is quite different. Some are, some are long haulers. It takes a long time for them to encounter Jesus. Some are short timers. Some are flash in the pans. But are you rejoicing knowing that God is sowing in this world and he is reaping this world? Right, Jesus is comparing, there's a physical harvest, right? Physical harvest is like, in four months now, the harvest will be able to reap and we can actually enjoy the fruits of that, right? That's how physical harvest, right? You plant seeds in the ground, they don't necessarily produce fruit right away. It takes time. And Jesus is telling this weird little parable, say, guess what? The spiritual harvest, it's right now. The sowing and the reaping happen together. Or the sowing has happened long ago, and the reaping is happening right now. They are combined together. It says, look at the sower and the reaper, they rejoice together. They're excited because they're simultaneous in the spiritual world. They're right now. Look at the, the sower, you, know, you, you can think about who are the sowers. Was it the prophets? Was it uh, John, the, uh, is John the Baptist in this context? I want you to understand all the sowers, all the seed that has been sowed in the world, Jesus is the sower. Jesus is the sower. I mean, we can enter into that work of sowing, but Jesus is the sower. This is his world. This is his field. And he has planted it. And he is inviting us. He's inviting us into the joy of the harvest. Not in the hard work of sowing. Into the joy of reaping in the harvest. John 4, 38. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You want to know the will of God for your life? Ever you should be shaking your head. Yes, I want to know God's will for my life. I want to be in the safe place. I don't like unsafe places. You were sent to reap. You were sent to reap. Ephesians 2, 10, I think even says it more clearly. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His works, his will. Reaping. Another simpler way, we are to find the lost. We are to find the seeds that have been planted. 
and that are ready to harvest in this world. That's simply what we are to do. That is why we proclaim Jesus. So the fruit reveals itself. You want to walk and do the work God has prepared for you? Everyone shake your head, yes. I want to do that. Do what Jesus does. I'm not saying die on the cross because you can't take away anyone's sin. That's not what I'm saying. But go the way of the cross. Jesus talks and offers life to the Samaritan woman. To a woman he should never talk to. To a person that was culturally not appropriate to talk to. Jesus risked his physical, temporal life to talk to this woman. To give her life. You want to do what God has prepared you to do? That's what God has prepared you to do. That's the work that he's given every one of us to do. You don't need to be a preacher to do it. John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Okay, that's pretty explicit. Whoever believes in Jesus will do the works that he does and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. He's talking about the way of the cross. You will do what I do. You will let your physical needs, I'm not saying totally neglect your physical needs, but at times, right, you will neglect what your need is and you will do what's best for the other, laying down your life. John 12, 24, 26, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, loses it. Whoever, I'm sorry, what? Whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, all, will, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just, I want you to understand this very clearly what Jesus is saying. Hey, if you're a wheat and you believe in Jesus... That's great. But if you're alone and you don't die for someone else, then that's it. But a a wheat is supposed to fall to the ground and produce more wheat. That, That stalk is supposed to die and produce more. That's how it works. This, this is, I've talked about this before, this is the cruciform existence of the universe, which is what the cross is all about. Things die so other things can live. This is how the universe works. Things die and then new things happen out of that. So it makes complete sense that the creator of the universe dies so there's new life, everlasting, eternal life for us. This is the way of discipleship. Willing to lay down our life for that new things so that we can reap and find the fruit. We bring the good news. We lay down our life to bring people God's word, which is the food of eternal life. We bring them the good news that the king is present and his kingdom is here now. We point people to Jesus. We enter into a cross cross 
cultural, boundary-defying ministry that makes us uncomfortable, that should make you uncomfortable, that seems very risky in the here and now. All of it for Jesus. I mean, this is what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. I already quoted it, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you think that was a frightening thing for them to hear? Yes. All of them, even after the resurrection, they heard this like, what? But Jesus said, you'll receive the power to do this. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. He's asking them to break a lot of boundaries in their life. A lot of things that make them safe. The Samaritans and, and the woman eventually discover that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They, they don't just die, Jesus is the Savior of the Jews or Jesus is the Savior of the Samaritans. Like, he is the Savior of everything. And look, and we are his witnesses. We point people to Jesus. Just like the woman risked it to point the townspeople who rejected her to point them to Jesus. They were saved by his words, not her words. Her words just pointed them to Jesus. And then they spent time with him like, yeah, now we get it. Now we get it. People aren't saved by our words. We're the ones that point in our words and our actions to Jesus. The way of the witness is the cross. The means of life is the cross. That is the work and will of Jesus for us. God created us for his will and this work. God has sent us for this will and for this work. Right? He says, go and make disciples. That's reaping. Go and make them by introducing them to Jesus. The safest place is the center of God's will. And here's the amazing thing. The place of rest in this world is God's will. Is entering into God's work. Not just taking a day off from doing anything or from your normal thing. It's actually being with Jesus in his will and in the work that he's prepared you to do. The Ten Boom family, they were caught hiding and protecting people from the Nazis. They were arrested, and Corey and Betsy ended up in a concentration camp. In that concentration camp, Betsy had three visions from God while in that camp that she shared with Corey. Now, the first one was that her and Corey would house and care for former prisoners. The second one was that they would create a concentration camp, but a concentration camp to actually teach the Germans how to love again because they knew that their love was broken, that something was wrong with them. And the third thing is that the both of them would be released by the new year. Betsy died 15 days before the new year. Corey was actually released by a clerical error from the camp, and she spent the rest of her life caring for former prisoners, teaching Germans to love again, she didn't create a concentration camp, (laughs) and pointing people to Jesus. Being in God's will, 
doing the will of God will feed your soul. It will bring you into God's rest. It is the safest place in the world, in the Father's will. However, being in the Father's will, doing the Father's will, does not secure or protect you from the sins of the world. The way of the cross is the way of life. The cross is the means of life, but the way of the cross is the way of life and eternal safety. It's not the way of temporal or worldly safety. I want you to understand that. The way of the cross wasn't safe for Jesus. He died on that cross. The way of the cross wasn't safe for the ten booms. They died. Corey survived, but she eventually died. Why would the way of the cross be safe for you and I in this world? There's never an example. Hey, see, it's safe. That's not the example given to us. It's the exact opposite. Let us enter the Father's will. Do his work. Teach the world to love again. Teach them who love is. Point them to Jesus. Point them to the cross. And that they may, may learn the way of love, the way of the cross, which is the safest place in the world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I am humbled for what you have done. I'm humbled for the incredible logic and way that you engage this world and the truth in which you have. At times it makes no sense and it flips everything upside down, Lord. Lord, but we know that our lives need to be flipped upside down. Lord, help us to have the courage to enter your safety and to not worry about the consequences of this world, not to be callous to the world, but to love the people around us, to enter into your will, enter into the finding the fruit and reaping, Lord, and rejoicing in it that you have called us to this. This, this incredible way of love, this only way of love. Lord, help us, help us to enter in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.